welcome to the official St. Patrick's College podcast as we begin our journey into discovering some of the all-time great stories from one of Ballarat's most famous institutions. I am Paul Nolan, the Director of Community Development at St. Patrick's, and I'm excited that you're joining me in this fourth episode as we take the opportunity to chat with someone who has had a profound impact on Ballarat business over the years. A student of St. Patrick's College in the 1950s, Les Dickinson's name became synonymous with pharmaceutical care in Ballarat for many decades, and he pioneered radical changes to the way business was conducted in the city. Les is a man with a remarkable work ethic, with a fierce passion for Ballarat and with great pride in the achievements of his family. Now he faces a new battle following a recent prognosis of a brain tumour, meaning he may not have much longer to live. It's my pleasure to introduce you to Les Dickinson. So upon leaving St Patrick's College, Les, what inspired you to follow a career as a pharmacist? I haven't rehearsed anything uh, with you, Paul, so this might be what they call warts and all. Um, Watson and all, that's fine. I, uh, I left St Patrick's when I was still 16, having completed year 12. Too young to know my own mind, too young to be let loose on anything. Um, for all the good things that can be done to you, uh, I really needed guidance when I was... I wasn't uh, 17 till the February after I completed Year 12. So um, I was a child. Um, I was not helped at school by a system that hadn't yet got uh, professional people in important roles. There was no career uh, director. There's no one to say, look, you really shouldn't have gone about that course in that time. Uh, my Year 12 uh, was successful. I, I about one in eight of us got a Commonwealth scholarship, as I remember, and uh, that was a helpful thing for all the parents. It's probably not an exact measure because some of the people that would have otherwise got Commonwealth scholarships would have taken up the studentship program. In those days, the government paid a living allowance and paid for the study for people to become school teachers, and out of that, many of my old boys have joined the teaching service and prospered through that. But uh, that sort of guidance wasn't available to me. Um, there was no even a designated class teacher to say, come and have a chat, feel what you might like to do. Um, I bought, my, my father was a kind man, uh, but sometimes he lacked guidance for me when I needed it most. And I remember saying to gently, I wonder what I should do. And uh, a lot of people are visibly shaken when I reply that a father, uh, a father who was well supported by his family, uh, would say, what's that got to do with me? And uh, uh, it's a question I was always able to welcome with my six children, what would I like to do? And uh, you learn to develop a technique where you're saying, I'm not telling you what to do, because that doesn't work, it's never worked, but I'll tell you what I would do if I was in your situation. In other words, join the dots. Uh, so I was left to fumble about with such a, a grab bag of uh, year 12 subjects. English, where the only mark was a pass, uh, Latin and French, and physics and chem. And uh, it was neither your arm to your elbow as a, as a process of education. Um, so I, after having been effectively uh, thrown into the deep end by my father, uh, my mother's family were a successful mercantile uh, family in as much as my grandfather was a tycoon of sorts in bread making and he'd made a lot of money. And uh, my mother uh, said... If you do pharmacy, you'll be able to, able to have a shop. Shops are good things. So it's hardly the uh, the process of uh, road to Damascus and I saw a career. So uh, so I did that course. I, I was quite good at it, uh, uh, 188 in a year. So I where think, did you do that course? At Victorian College of Pharmacy. Yeah. It's now part of Monash. 
Uh, I finished fourth out of 188. Uh, but that's of interest and, and no knowledge of me. So if you leave that out, uh, I don't mind. But uh, it, uh, I was never better than my craft. But I, uh, I found it more than a little bit uh, frustrating. Uh, uh, some of my friends uh, say I should have done something else. Well, I think I know that too. But that's if this is part of an answer of whatever else uh, you've got for me, Paul. It's you make a decision. Imagine I was sixteen, mm. and I've made it, and I and I stayed in pharmacy until I retired at fifty-eight. Uh, it's interesting, you know. I was good at pharmacy. Um, when I retired, uh, BHP forgot to send for me as a director. <laughs> your, your, sing, your single training course established you only for that. I, you know, I, I look with jealousy on people who've done law or commerce or whatever, and yet they've got a broad brush of skills. Well, I, I knew pharmacy inside out, and and uh, all those directorships I didn't get. Uh, so when you graduate that course, do you come and immediately start your own business? Is that what happened you, or did you do a time in, with somebody else? You Actually, my course was the last – why the course would normally, not normally have 188 in it, but we were the last of the old diploma course, so-called, and it became a, a Bachelor of Pharmacy the year after. So they had all these dribs and drabs that they had to do something with and uh, they, uh, they got uh, – uh, they just, I mean, they couldn't leave them reasonably hanging. Then some of them had taken uh, eight to ten years for a, for a four-year course. Um, I think of those days uh, as almost uh, uh, a joke. Uh, you, you were learning. One of the books we we did our, our training at was a was a, a, a recipe book for pharmacy. It's called Pharmacopoeia, and. And we used to uh, have to make things out of the 1947. This is in 1962. Out of the 1947 wartime pharmacopoeia, and uh, we would uh, where things were in short supply, and and so on. It's an interesting uh, window to it, but it wasn't uh, totally enriching. I, I sometimes laugh at the things we were taught that uh, really weren't true. Uh, some of the ingredients we used. Um, but it, uh, it was, that's just the way it is. And, uh, uh, of course, uh, the thing was that you actually spent the rest of your time, the next uh, 40 years in pharmacy, learning every day because there were products coming in. You, something had come in. They, they didn't have a formal continuing education program, but you knew what you had to do. And uh, you'd recognise something. Which, you know, a drug had appeared, never seen this before. Uh, so you'd look up somewhere. At, uh, but it was... Uh, uh, it was a very, very backward sort of way to learning. Uh, uh, if you think that you've got, you know, you snap. I, was, I was still twenty, mm. and I'd completed pharmacy. I had to wait to turn twenty-one, and um, it was uh, uh, it was a funny, funny world of things. Well, I, I don't know, I'm repeating, but some of the things we, we were taught uh, were just ineffective, uh, and. Uh, they shouldn't have been part of our education. So, so your pharmacy, which was in Bridge Street, or yes. later, later became the Bridge Mall, yeah. became something of an institution in Ballarat, particularly after you became the first to um, open for extended hours, nine till nine each day. So, what made you pursue that move? Uh, you don't have to be clever; you just have to be awake. And you saw that they were happening in Melbourne, and they're happening in Geelong. So uh, with my chief of staff, which is a, uh, I always kid to her, she's a wonderful helper friend to this day, but uh, I had to delineate her, you know, as first amongst what other of us would have seen as equal. So we went down to Geelong to have a chat to them about how they did it and we found it was adaptable to, to our circumstance. In, in commercial terms, if you... Same applies to supermarkets and so on, that, that if they have got a... A 75-hour week, and they extend that to 168-hour week. Uh, they don't wear the they don't wear the carpets out much more. The walls don't need more painting. So, yeah, it's good business to to get your gross margin uh, because all the, you, you, you correctly as accountants would say you've got a, 
apply your other holding charges. But since they've already paid by the, by the first 60 hours of the week, so you had to work out your gross margin, work out your staff and perhaps a couple of dollars for, for light and, and, uh, and the like. And that's what in, in fact happened. It was, uh, it's funny when you think about it because uh, whilst we were competitive in, with, other, with other pharmacists, we, we didn't want to engage in ruinous price stripping. But I remember seeing a fellow from um, Ararat who came to see me and we'd been in my year and I said to him, it was good to, uh, uh, to talk. He said, ah, oh, you uh, presumably weren't invited to the chemist's Christmas meeting. Okay. No, I, 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 it saved me refusing to go because when I'd broken the code by going uh, nine to nine, he said, yes, they... Uh, they wouldn't have had much to talk about without you. So the impact was, of course, it was cosy. You had a roster, you were on uh, full call uh, four times a year that you'd sit by the phone uh, to get up. And it didn't happen, you know, because the doctors didn't want to work. So how the world has changed, it's, a, it's an interesting snippet in time. And, but, oh, yes, uh, uh, the... Uh, fellow who reported back to me said if they'd had a voodooed all of me. <laughs> so I, I was forced into a defensive mode and I said, I understand their position, you know, which of course was just to keep stoking the, the fire because they've got their own pharmacy and if, if their child is sick, they just go in and get it. So they don't need my pharmacy. I understand their position. So I joined the dots and uh, I, uh, I, I must say it was, it was commercially a great success and... Uh, uh, but enormous imposition to, to know that uh, every day you, you would be opening. Uh, I think I did tell uh, Paul another time, I did 500 days straight. Mm. And uh, So how uh, did you do that? How can somebody work for 500 days <laughs> consecutively? Well, you'd wonder, wouldn't you? No, no union uh, would let you do it. But uh, uh, my, my standard working week was uh, Monday 9 to 9. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, uh, 9 to 9. Uh, no, sorry, delete, delete, delete. Monday, 9 to 9. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, 9 to 6. Uh, Friday, 9 to 9. Saturday, 9 to 1. Sunday, 9 to 1. But what happened was, if you've been in management, one of the things that I be did become an ex expert in was getting people to work for me my way and it's very different with professional equals because we're all registered under the pharmacy board of victoria so i had to work i'd notionally leave at at, at um, six o'clock but i'd come with someone who last week had made a, not a not a dispensing blunder but a blunder of judgment by giving credit to someone you, you could have uh, smelt that they were never going to repay me and we did give some money away but uh, what, uh, what it meant was I had to say to these professional equals, and I'm sure it's consistent with other, other people, you've got to get them to do things. I had to sell to do things my way so I knew in my absence what was going on. But I had to at the same time tell a little fib and say, I understand there's nothing wrong with your way. And uh, so, so that was part of the, the process. And, it, and it, was, it was a burden because by decree with that equal, but by... By performance, they certainly won't. Uh, but it was uh, weren't at least. But the uh, but it, it took some time, and then you had to get people who. I mean, we had one person coming in on Sunday. Well, in all the years, and I ran the nine to nine from 1978 till August uh, 2000. What I'd managed to do was create a an esprit de corps, if you like. Now, anyone else would get sick. And just say I'm not coming in. Well, not once did anyone in that span of time default. Mm -hmm. They saw that I was able to, skillfully or not, or perhaps it was a wage, because it was, it was a, an after-hours wage, so it was a loading. But not once did I get a call on a Sunday morning to say someone wasn't coming in. Mm. So I must have done something right to, to, to get them to realise that... Sure, they must have been sick, but not in in all those years did anyone uh, default, and they would, they would sort out the wages. I often would not know. Yeah, okay. So it it, it wasn't uh, it wasn't a brilliant career, Paul, but it um, it needed a lot of cooperation with 
with family. Yeah, well, that's what I was going to ask. So with with six children at home and with you yeah. working such long hours, you yeah. know, your wife Trudy must have also been working incredibly hard. Yes, she's, uh, she's more than a bit special because not once did she say, uh, I have a friend whose wife uh, told him as a, as, a, as a GP, I don't care about the money anymore. If you don't stop working less, uh, you're going to be on your lonesome. Well, uh, that's someone else's call. But I, I've had all the, I had seven Christmas days where I worked from nine till, till one. But so it, 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 it was a real partnership. It was a partnership that was for a purpose uh, and it paid its way. But once you open your big mouth and uh, you were there up to your ears in it and uh, yeah, it's good to talk, uh, Paul, because uh, I hadn't reflected on the fact that no one defaulted, you know, that people could uh, – in, in that um, in all those years, uh, no one didn't turn up and they managed their, their replacements. It's, 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 it's terrific. I asked you this last week as well. Do you have any regrets about working so many long hours at that time of your life? Well, it crops up a little bit. I suppose you it can, you can get a bit realistic. I, I opened my big mouth on the 1st of November 1978 to go nine to nine. I had no staff because I wanted to commercially want to spring it on the town. So I had... 20 ads a day uh, on 3BA and I had a full page in the Courier and it was a blitzkrieg, you know, it, it, uh, uh, as well as uh, uh, being hated uh, for the commercial drive, uh, it was compensated with, with gratitude from the other. Some of, the, some of the clients became permanent clients, some didn't uh, and you just take your chances. But the big risk was there would be people that I'd be able to share the workload. I was putting myself cold into a, into a uh, uh, 84 hour week. And, and on the first day, I turned up with me to be there next. Well, the chemists came out of the woodwork uh, and, uh, and I didn't do, well, I did that, that week. But the 500 days straight, it's, it's interesting. Um, you just say, well, that's the way it is. Uh, and and the other thing was the, the professional equals did need a little bit of guidance. So sometimes I wouldn't get away. Uh, it's a, it was a different world. Super, imagine supermarkets closing at midday on a Saturday. Mm. Pubs not serving anything after 6 o'clock. Well, of course, our busiest time became between between 1 and 2 when people were getting turfed out of the, uh, mm. out of the supermarkets. So... It was an enormous commercial risk uh, in terms of personal toll. That's the lucky thing. Now, I'm, you know, I'm not well now, but, but I have been retired for 20 years and that and putting in like that. Mm-hmm. And one thing I was fortunate, the business was big enough, small enough, that I didn't need partnerships. Uh, it was close to a partnership once and uh, no sooner had I worked out that it mightn't be a good idea than his marriage fell apart. So at least I was... In charge of my marriage, <laughs> even though often absent. But uh, you know, seven Christmas days of the of the kids going off to friends, and and it it it, it doesn't sadden me. It was all for a good course. I mean, I I'm, I'm 78. I got out at 58. Uh, I've got friends who are loving their work in their 70s. I try and tell them you'd love it not to work. Uh, uh, so I've you know I I don't know how long I've got. No one knows how long you've got to live. But uh, uh, I've, I've, it got me 20 years of, uh, of retirement. So it finished up being a good investment in, in effort. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so being a pharmacist in a town like Ballarat for so long, you, you would have seen many societal changes over the years. Um, so what are the, some of the changes that you witnessed in Ballarat that really stick out in, in your mind? Ooh, that's the biggest question you'd ever ask, isn't it? It's... Uh, uh, Geographically, uh, the town developed. It sort of got found in, in some ways. Uh, if I take you back to first uh, of March, nineteen seventy-one, when I opened the, took I succeeded a man who'd who'd run a pharmacy who'd succeeded since the eighteen eighties, and uh, he was a fine fellow, 
but such a different world. Um, the tram ran down the middle of the, the bridge mill. Uh, you could do U-turns. You could park on both sides of the street. And the uh, little bit I knew about commerce at large, you could build a house and not get your money back selling it in a couple of years' time. Uh, the current boom and, and expansion, but you'd just say, well, you've just got to put into the house you want and let the future look after itself, because that was the case. Uh, uh, my first block of land was $2,103, and uh, uh, that's in, in this suburb. It's, uh, it's all silly to, the, to think of the change. So uh, the town was, I think, probably reasonably deemed as quite sleepy. Uh, there were plenty of people that you addressed as Mr or Mrs. Uh, it was a very polite world. Uh, the, the doctor, certainly, uh, you didn't use his first name. He didn't offer it either. Uh, and he would... Pro I had some clients at the pharmacy that I, I had three of them and I couldn't get them to use my name. And it's a magnificent woman... Mrs. Reed, she was special. Um, she had to, and the issue with pharmacy, Paul, was I had to create a difference where essentially there wasn't one. So Mrs. Reed would walk past, walk in from Skipton Street, past half a dozen places. So I had to entertain her, if you like. You know, I was up front. It wasn't uh, anything like an automatic process. Anyway, she was very demure. She was very proper. Hello, Mrs. Reed. Hello, Mr. Dickinson. Please call me Liz. No, I won't do that, Mr. Dickinson. Uh, anyway, one day she... I don't mind if you edit this out completely, but one day she uh, gave just a niche of, of herself and she said to Mr. Dickinson, yes, Mrs. Reed, there's a sign of wear on the couch you've provided while waiting for prescriptions. And uh, I said, yes, we're, we're going to attend to it uh, Mrs. Reed, inventing all this. It's the tiniest split in the vinyl. Uh, Mrs. Reed, do you know about the use of pays? Uh, uh, tell me about it, Mr. Dickinson. Well, if a school uses Victoria Park, they, they pay for it. And if you go to the basketball stadium, you, you pay for it. Yes, I understand. Now I understand what use of pays. Well, what we've done is special technology, just as this, you'd think I was, wasn't busy at all. But bombs are going off all around and I take leave. And I say, well, what modern science has determined, Mrs Reed, is that bottom prints are as identifiable as fingerprints. No, absolutely talking nonsense because the user pay... Uh, so she's listened blankly to that. And I said, we've worked out who's worn the seat out. <laughs> so user pays, it's, it's, it's underway and thank you for pointing it out. So the, the moment of truth, if you ever tell a... A joke or attempt to tell a joke. This is a world original. Uh, you, you will never get this from anyone else, Kevin. Uh, uh, and the moment is, Mrs. Reed said, You won't get me. I always wear a coat. Now, the hook, the fish had been landed. So I, I said to her, I know our technology is better than that. So uh, she immediately got up and stood, and I got the prescription. So forever and a day, and she was a very nice person. Uh, an old Brit, and as she came came in, I would stop what I'm doing. Mrs Reed, would you care to sit down? <laughs> so there's not much point in having a running gag unless you run with it. Yeah. So, so it wasn't. That was one of the things in in work uh, was you could you could see some delight. Then the other thing, of course, you you're dealing with sick people, and, and you you learn to get an appreciation of, of of pain. One of the things that came in in my time was the management of depression. Previously, all your issues of that type were about sedation. But the use of chemicals, and uh, it was interesting having to convince people that they've made their best choice of a doctor and, uh, and the pills will work and you don't have to cooperate. Way back then, Paul, the notion was you could pull yourself together. So in some ways, I've lived through terrific times of of enlightenment coming to, to, to sick people. Yeah. Uh, I'm wondering too if a societal change that you witnessed was 
um, was there a greater propensity to see more drug abuse in, in Ballarat yes, in your time in, yes, in pharmacies? Ter- terribly sad. The last thing you want to hear, pharmacists' role is in public, public health. Pharmacy people are so well trusted because they're accessible and, dare I say it, they're free. So if you want to, if you come in and say, uh, I don't feel well, and you ask people what they're taking, and say, well, you know, perhaps with advice you'd knock off some of that or only take it when you're absolutely necessary. Well, that's a common side effect. So you didn't get flattered by being asked lots of questions for which there was. I think in time, pharmacy will work to, to you know, you don't expect anything for nothing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but through my work time, you did. And uh, uh, there was a greater understanding of particularly um, non-physical in, uh, episodes like depression. We've still got a long way to go. Mm-hmm. We haven't... We haven't cracked the hardcore of, of uh, depression that leads to suicide, leads to uh, all sorts of things. But it was an interesting time because we were first generation of people coming in and suddenly we had an interventionist role. Uh, doctor shopping was not, not known before my time uh, and it, it doesn't happen now because there's communication. But you, you had... People, we didn't work out. I mean, we, we were in business, but it eventually worked out that someone coming in uh, three times a week for a cough mixture uh, that should last a whole week. So we, st- we found ourselves as policemen and imposing uh, limits on that. Mm. And it, it's quite alarming. You can see a great wall of it behind you. And someone had asked for some quadral link to say, I'm sorry, we sold out. And uh, they'd, point, they'd point out, no, some of that, no, that's, that's not for sale, you know. And that's, of course, against your, your commercial, uh, which you, you just had to do that. So what you, that's a good, a good uh, an example, I think, of, of how your, your public health role uh, uh, was, just had to be exerted. Mm. We're a bit, ha- a bit ahead of the legislation, I think, by, by telling people in their best interest that we didn't. But uh, there's some ugly truths about addicts. Uh, uh, they're liars. They're often thieves and... Uh, uh, and that did put strain on staff. I didn't actually lose uh, staff because they couldn't uh, cope with it. But uh, one night I was not far from work and two lovely women, were two part-time, when I became a, a drug addict, to, with, with, I didn't know the use of the word tomato knife. So, he, so he's, we, had a, we had a process. So he opened the drug safe told him to help himself, which he did. Uh, the police came. I went and picked him up. Uh, and I, uh, I said, how do you know where to go? He said, oh, there's a meeting of um, Narcotics Anonymous tonight. So we thought he'd be off to that. So uh, we did have, uh, I think we had it. I mean, I was there for a long time. But uh, uh, before we installed a security system, people would take the tin off the roof and and dive in through the plaster. So, so it wasn't without its, uh, its, its traumas, but uh, it, it, it's, I think it's going to be cleaned up nicely with, with more care available. And, mm-hmm. uh, so somehow, despite having such a busy professional and family life, you still managed to be heavily involved in community and service groups around Ballarat as well over the, over the time. Tell us about some of those groups and committees which resonate you know, deepest yes, in your a, heart and, and why. This is a great uh, example of community, uh, Paul. And uh, I was never in any sort of uh, exclusive group. These uh, these were available to, to a battler like me, if you like. Um, I was in the Apex Club. You come, I think it's I think it's feeble now, but there will be some there will be an organisation outside a sporting club that you can join. Uh, I became the president. I loved it. Uh, what happened, of course, here I was doing service work on the weekends, chopping wood and uh, shoveling sheep manure uh, for charity, and I've got a, a wife and five kids, uh, so I, you know, you, you can't always do it for some, but it was most rewarding. Uh, there was um, another organisation uh, which has since, I think, closed down, uh, but it was um, like a civilian group for... Widows, as opposed to uh, 
the widows of old soldiers, like Legacy, well, this this organisation was uh, was a terrific organisation. Their their charter was they'd find out uh, a widow was recently bereaved, and we would go uh, two of us at a time. There were about forty or fifty in the group, uh, and we would see the widow before the funeral, and that was a bit like. Uh, uh, entering, entering a war zone, oh. um, and you'd go to see these people. Often, uh, they didn't have to be poor, but often they were uh, really disadvantaged. They have little kids, and dad had died by suicide. Dad had died in a car accident. Dad had died just because he died. Mm. Uh, so, so that was a terrific organisation, and and you could get. Uh, uh, you can get rewards out of uh, out of that, but they were they were two of the organisations that that I uh, I really enjoyed being part of. But you uh, you uh, I'm sure it makes sense. I really had to leave that organisation using my spare time to look after other uh, wives and children when I had my own wife and four or five on the way to six little kids. But but it, it it's a terrific way to. To feel as though you belong. Uh, right back to the 60s, uh, the Apex world was was much more significant because public uh, offerings of social security were less, and and as those have grown, you don't need to to do those things. And that's what happened. So, Liz, you were recently sorry, you were recently diagnosed as having a brain tumour and, and were told news that nobody wants to hear, that doctors expect that you don't have long left to live. So how did you respond to, to that news and, and how are you planning on, on living your final months? I don't know whether this is the trailing commission from St Patrick's or not. I don't know. I don't know if this has given me the... This is for all the, the things that you may not have delivered on. I don't know whether this is what uh, has come out of it. Now, I am not a holy Joe, uh, but um, perhaps I'm an example of the, uh, the very suitable cliche that virtue is insufficient temptation. I am not, I am not holy, but I, uh, I've got a year, I've 70, put the shutdown, I'm running 70 years straight of going to mass. And uh, I keep my... Opinions to myself. Uh, my wife is, is if you like, much more Catholic. I, I go on, uh, I go on the days that are declared, but she goes voluntarily. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, so, out of I'm only guessing, Paul. Out of that Catholic training, uh, I have been. And I've spoken to, to my oncologist. I've spoken to. Uh, I have a sister-in-law who's a senior psychiatrist, and I've spoken to her. And, and others, is it a blessing to be unfazed by all of this? You know, they talk about bravery in the face, and I'm not going to use words battle with cancer. I'm not battling, I'm, I'm taking the pills. Uh, but it, it is uh, interesting that the Catholic, you can't do a double blind trial on yourself. But I've, the circumstances of the, of the tumour are not at all unpleasant for me to talk about. Uh, you're not intruding. Um, only about 100 metres from home, I passed out from a fit. And I've woken up. First thing was a sense of shame. I thought, I sort of, you know, I don't mean to prang like that. I hit a parked truck. And uh, and you look and I now that know what the inside of a airbag looks like. Uh, there's a cracked windscreen. And uh, I worked out that I, something must have happened. So I've been taken off to uh, St John's by ambulance and uh, and the like. Uh, they've put me through their various machines. They found something in the first test. They said there's something in there. So later on in the day they did a full body scan to show that it wasn't anywhere else. So the next day uh, the mighty man opens my head for two hours and two minutes and takes out a golf ball, orange size tumour. Uh, it comes in four levels. And, of course, I've always been an overachiever. Uh, there is a fifth, more sinister type. So there's a four-level glioma and there's another one 
called a sarcoma on top of it. So uh, it's here you you get. Well, I didn't didn't have a Panadol tablet. I had little clips that held my head together, and uh, uh, I had no pain, uh, and mercifully, no way was I worried about my future. So the um, the surgeon comes in the next day. They don't do it well on television unless they. The changed. He, his name is Damien uh, Tange. He uh, came in and said, uh, "You look all right." I said, "Yes, thank you, Doctor uh, Damien." And uh, uh, so he doesn't. What do you want to know? He just tells me, "You've got nine months to twenty-four months to live." Now, no uh, violins or anything else. That's just exactly as we we wanted to be told. And these are honest times. So uh, averages as we. Don't exist. Uh, sometimes I've just passed uh, ten months, uh, but the blessing is—I um, mean, I have no fear. That's a real blessing, but no pain. I've—I've I've been Christianized. I—I believe in a, in a in a hereafter. I know the cynics say, "Well, if you if you got it wrong, it doesn't matter, does it?" But <laughs> I'm in a stronger place than that, I think. And uh, the interesting thing about being sick is you come closer to people you didn't know liked you as much as they did. Mm. And they're not uh, ambulance hunters like some, they say about some uh, legal practice, but they, they uh, people want to see you while they can. Uh, they ask how you are and they care. Uh, I got a phone call uh, saying, uh, Liz, do you remember me? I'm Fonce Cunningham. Fonce Cunningham, we haven't sp spoken since 1957. Is your phone number still Nanagoon 1? Now, that's the ties that bind Addison Patrick's mm. once the word got out. And um, it, it, uh, it's, it, it's a, I, I wish it on no one, uh, but I wake up in the morning, I don't, account, uh, I don't go to bed, so well, that's one, one off my allotted span. Uh, you take... A realistic approach to sickness, which you didn't before, and no one would say, "What a tragedy! This seventy-eight-year-old man has died." Because it isn't. Uh, it's we've all, even looking at you, handsome young fellows, you're going to get your turn, and uh, it's uh, it's good. But but the friendships that have been exposed, uh, I said to one fellow, uh, "I didn't realise we were such friends." He said, "Oh, that's probably my fault, not yours." Uh, but I, uh, uh, you know, people claiming you, you know, it's. A, Quite, uh, quite special. Uh, the end of I'm an authority of one, Paul. But uh, the end of your life, uh, in my case, blessed without fear or pain, uh, and a belief in in the hereafter. Uh, I mean, I I just live. Uh, I think the the treatment that I have makes me very tired, uh, and I begrudge that because I'd like to be awake for for the rest of my life. But uh, I can go to sleep for. Ten hours and wake up tired, mm. uh, and then you ask the expert. At this stage, I must say, this is the most fantastic town to be sick in. Mm. Uh, Healthcare is good here, isn't oh, it? Ah, goodness, we'd leave. Trudy and I'd leave at nine o'clock for a nine twenty appointment at Brick in Drummond Street. Uh, the girls are there. I mean, those of us who went to Catholic schools, we we're always impressed with the fact that they're. Life was a was as a career was also a calling. Well, the the, the secular paraphrase must be these people who work in cancer, mm -hmm. because they are so good to you and 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 they just so it's a smooth pull the way they take you through your procedure, and you know that when they I always think it's a when they ask how are you, well they wait for the answer. You know it might seem a token question, but they ask for the real answer. How is how are your family coping with, with your sickness? Well, it's a big family, as you know, six children. Uh, they were shocked. They were shocked. And uh, when I was in, in Epworth, I'm not as nice as I seem. Uh, I'm sly and uh, manipulative. And uh, uh, all my six children are, are there to see me. 
And there's, they, they weren't crying in front of me, but something had happened to them. And it, Epworth's a marvellous place. Uh, so um, I thought, opportunism. So I've got those six champion children there, aged from 52 to 41. So uh, being a risk taker, I said, I was just thinking, uh, my beautiful children, um, do I owe you anything? I mean, that's terrible. It gives them a chance to, to say how grateful they are to me, which chance they took. <laughs> so they, they spent the next five minutes uh, telling me how I'd paid for cars and studies and hex and Melbourne boarding schools and, and overseas tours and, and the like. But I, I, I did just jimmy that out of them. Uh, uh, so that's uh, the good thing is, and it, it, it's not a universal thing, I didn't have to ask one other children, you better chase your brother up because we, we're not talking anymore, see if you'll come round. We, we haven't, when, no more or less than other families, but we haven't. Uh, we've always had Christmases together. No one was boycotting. So it's, I, guess, I guess it's the management was there, uh, Paul, but it, sometimes it doesn't work. Mm. It, uh, they're, a, they're a good lot and they'll be here. Uh, they're rowdy when they get going and they bring their thirst and that's my idea too. So what advice would you give to students of today, so the teenage boy who's living in Ballarat now, about how they can live their life to the fullest? Yes, I suppose it's, it's all a bit cliche-ridden, but if you can look to the best advice to what someone will suit you to do, if I've learned something from, from my own situation, uh, if you can get someone to tell me what I should do, what could I do, and uh, and to th if if you could get that to to a child uh, to think beyond what your mates do. When I was in in hospital, uh, my son Eugene has got three children uh, that are old enough, and I sat them down uh, a rare moment for a grandfather to have a fourteen or sixteen or an eighteen year old sort of captive. People drifted in and out of the four thousand two hundred and fifty dollar night room that I was in called intensive care and uh, I, I had these children as a captive audience and I, uh, I thought, oh, bugger it, you know, they can walk out or they can never bother to talk. I said, I just want to tell you something uh, while I got the chance to, to, of what I've learned. One is I want you to really try and do your best but that means several things. But the few things I want you not to do Never smoke. Never play the poker machines. If that's the best company you can get, you need better company. You are not playing the poker machines. The poker machines are playing you. I want you to spend last year's money, not next year's. I want you to make your own decisions for yourself. Uh, I want you to, to be not part of the pack and... Uh, I want you to pay your credit card early or on time. And, it was, uh, and the other thing is, and you've I never heard this from anyone else, when you seek advice, buy it. Don't get your advice from the people you go to school with because they don't know. Don't get your, your advice on whether to buy a house or a car or, or anything else. Pay for advice. It's cheap. Ask a, ask a parent... But the parent probably doesn't know. Uh, and, and anyway, the next time we sat down, so there are six points, that six tablets of the Mormon. <laughs> so uh, they, uh, that just came to me on the, on the spot. And the next time I, I saw my son, he said, God, you've rattled the cage for the kids. They sit down and recite back the, the six uh, uh, commandments. Uh, I said, and they said, stay it again, Dad. What does, what does it mean? Pay for advice. Uh, that that sort of because they don't uh, they don't take that. Do you agree with uh, any of those things? Uh, Absolutely, but much better paying for advice than perhaps getting off social media, which or googling it, which is yes. what kids would do these days. So, so it was uh, it was highly satisfactory to me to to get a to get an audience uh, like that and, and to know. I mean, not all always will you pass a story on uh, like that and know that it has in fact uh, resonated with the. Uh, with the, 
you've hit your target. Yeah. So, so the, they, those things are probably the broader brush. Uh, you know, there are a dozen other things like don't waste your time on social media. Try and get some sport into your life. If you keep playing sport, you can play cricket into your 30s and 40s. You can play footy. You know, there are lots of things to do and uh, it'll give you an appointment. But those uh, those things uh, about, you know, I'm so strong about, about smoking and, and uh, turning around the playing the poker machines when they're in fact playing you. But perhaps that last one, though, that, that buying for advice, uh, uh, you know, what... If, if, even if a school put on a on a commercial night for you to uh, to to know some things, to know the cost of money, uh, you know, to know the value of money, and and that other one that that spending last year's money and only do what you want to do, it uh, it's very very. Uh, it's funny you should ask me that because I didn't mind airing that. I was mm. quite proud of that little sermon on the mound. <laughs> very good. So finally, Les, you've been an agent of change for Ballarat uh, for the better in many ways. And the city, as you alluded to earlier, is now experiencing a period of enormous growth and change. So what is your hope for the future of Ballarat? What do you want to see Ballarat become? Uh, there are a few things that uh, are coming. Uh, a lot of us wonder if the housing is coming out ahead of the need you know you, you travel just a mile from here and, and there's a whole township uh, being spread out but uh, uh, if they had nowhere to stay they wouldn't be coming so uh, the train to Melbourne in 50 minutes will be marvellous uh, I think a lot of us are quite happy not to drive and uh, uh, we like driving but we're quite happy not to so you can get to, uh, to get to Melbourne Live in Ballarat and work in, in Melbourne. Uh, the the promotion of the town as a centre for education is is probably well underway. The centre for health is well underway. Uh, what I've found in talking to people, this used to be silly town. Uh, in the sixties, the local patricians would say, "Well, it'll be thirty or forty years before you you're really of Ballarat." You know, you didn't. I went to school here, but others would say, and I'd said, uh, but there was a big influx of professionals in the 70s, people who discovered there was a better place than Melbourne. And uh, and that old 30 or 40 years before you accepted that as trash, you probably have never heard of it. Uh, oh, no, I did when yeah, I first yeah. moved up, the same sort of thing. Yeah. You're not a local till you've been here 25 years yeah, or so. Well, you get laughed out of court if you... If you'd looked as though you believed it, uh, but that's in the person who said it. But it, but it was, uh, uh, you know, and you'd cooperate. You'd say, well, I've got my 30 years up. He said, yes, we've, we've looked at you, we've rejigged it and you better wait another 10 years. Uh, only half in, uh, in, in, with a smile. But it, uh, uh, the town, uh, I am closely connected with a politician and... Uh, your daughter? My daughter, yes. <laughs> Julianne Anderson. <laughs> yes. And when... Uh, uh, it's interesting. If ever you're the parent of a politician, I mean, she's a trick, uh, I said to her, uh, what's going on, sweetheart? And she said, uh, the primary will be up tomorrow. And, uh, oh, that's good. And what's he going to announce? It'll be in the Courier on Saturday. Now, how's that for a nice loving daughter slap down? <laughs> so... Uh, the, uh, I don't have any uh, insight into uh, what's going to happen. But uh, the, the thing is people are starting to love coming here because of access to services and, uh, and you can get heard and you can wander into, into Juliana in Lydiard Street. And, uh, uh, yes, it's a, it's a wonderful town in that sense. But the, the people that uh, have made their, their mark here then suddenly they're interested in the council. Suddenly they're interested in, in, in the local sports group. And that's the size of Ballarat is, is sensational and, and will be sensational at 100,000 people. Uh, the CBD will always be that. The other parts of the town, uh, it's a very, very good place to be. Uh, I had to speak at a, uh, 
in my apex days actually, and they had forgotten to get someone to speak to the city. And uh, I was the nearest, uh, and I probably would have volunteered anyway, but I, uh, I got up and said that I'm delighted to have a chance to, to speak uh, to, the, to the mayor, and, uh, and I, I want to make uh, nothing very deep, but I want to tell you how much this place means to me. But I want to point out something to all of you. Uh, I have been here since I was 13. I was born somewhere else. I have been away as a student. I've travelled internationally. I am here because I want to be here. I have a, a ticket of leave. I can work anywhere in Australia. And I want to remind you that by you choosing to stay here, you are in fact making a commitment to this town. And that's what this town uh, means to me. I could go, this is a wonderful place, wear it with pride. Uh, when Juliana... Uh, a little bit of advice that she hasn't taken was when someone teases you about Ballarat being cold, which is which is paltry. Uh, I've suggested to her you'd say that it's minus seventeen in Winnipeg, mm -hmm. and leave, and walk on. Well, I don't think she's used that yet, but uh, I think that's the answer you should give people who say that this is a cold place, because uh, it is a wonderful place. But to get that into your head, you're here because you're here. You could go somewhere else. You could go anywhere else, and uh, and that's a that's a meaningful thing. Well, Les, thank you for sharing some of your great life stories with us today, and for spending some time with us. Um, it's been great to have you as a guest on our podcast series, and, and we wish you all the very best for for what's to come, and and hope you have a wonderful Christmas with your family. Thanks, uh, Paul. I've not done one of these before. Uh, God knows how long it would have gone if I'd. If I'd had some practice, but it's uh, it's nice to uh, to feel part. This is again part of feeling part of the community, and and uh, I owe, I owe everything to to this community, and uh, in some ways I've repaid it. In other in other ways I'm a real beneficiary. But my children are coming back here. Their circumstances of of uh, employment take them by and large out of here, but it is a marvelous place, and uh, uh, I just hope that. That message of uh, of peace in my life through the uh, brain tumour, uh, which I, now that it's removed is called they, they talk about brain cancer. I'll, I'll not know whether there is that so called the trailing commission of of religious belief, but I'm certainly living very comfortable in a very comfortable way in a very uncomfortable position. <laughs> Thank you, Les. We aim to produce two of these each term and we'll distribute them through the green, white and blue e-newsletter, which is emailed to all old collegians twice a term. If you're not receiving it and want to sign up for it, make sure you get in contact with the college and give us your details. We look forward to seeing you again when the next episode airs. <laughs>